Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumble.org. Last week we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and Pastor Doug unpacked uh, in that chapter that the church in Corinth was not confronting a member of the church regarding open sin that he was living in. So this man was in an inappropriate sexual relationship with his uh, stepmother. And Paul says, even the pagans, even, even your neighbors who aren't believers, don't tolerate something like this. And so Paul says, you need to address this person. You need to uh, maintain the unity and the purity of the church. And you need to pursue this man in his sin so that he will repent of his sin and come back to Jesus. So they should have been uh, confronting this man, and they weren't. And now, here in chapter 6 this week, we're going to see that the members of the church were confronting each other, but they were confronting each other about things that they shouldn't have, and they were doing it for unhealthy reasons. Here in Corinth, in chapter 6, members of the church were filing lawsuits in the Roman legal system against each other. They were taking one another to court seeking to settle their grievances in court. So for the sake of financial gain and personal satisfaction, they were ruining relationships with fellow believers, and they were bringing shame on Christ and his church. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against one another, against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There are 10 rhetorical questions in this passage. So in 11 verses, there are 10 rhetorical questions. And three times, Paul says, do you not know? Next week, Pastor Doug's going to look at the second half of chapter 6, and there are three more occasions of do you not know? Paul asks rhetorical question after rhetorical question after rhetorical question. 
He's pursuing the church here. He's, uh, he's telling them that grace needs to reframe their grievances. So he's calling out their, uh, their lack of wisdom by, by asking them these questions. So he uses these rhetorical questions to remind the church of two realities. First, that they are forgetting what it means that the church is a family. And second, they are forgetting what it means to be declared righteous by Jesus Christ. Let's look at that first problem. The church in Corinth was forgetting what it means that the church is a family. We see that in verses 1 through 8. Again, in verse 1, Paul says, when, you, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? We know that Christians are supposed to live in unity. We're supposed to be at peace with one another. Uh, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul tells us that. Paul says that we should strive for that unity. We should be eager to have unity as a church. But it doesn't happen automatically. It takes work to create unity, to work toward unity and peace within the church. The, the fact that the church in Corinth had these grievances, or he calls them disputes uh, or quarrels, the fact that they had these, these grievances is not the problem. Paul is not assuming that the church is going to just live in perfect harmony with each other. But their decision to take these grievances to a secular court is the problem. Life is messy. Relationships are difficult. Believers fail and we miscommunicate and we hurt each other. We are imperfect people and we live in a world that is broken and messy. And so it should be no surprise to us that relational tension arises, that uh, disputes arise where we have to figure out who's right and, and who's wrong and what's the best thing to do in this situation. But Paul's worried that they're taking it to the courts. The King James Version does a good job with the word order in verse 1. Uh, in the Greek, the word dare is first. And so Paul's just emphasizing that. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? He's shocked. Are you serious? You're taking one another to court? over your grievances? Why are you doing it that way? The first problem with this approach, Paul says, you don't need the Roman courts. God has given the church the resources to handle these grievances. You don't need to go to court with one another because God has given you those resources in the church. Verse 2, Paul says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? In verse 2, when he says, we are to judge the world, uh, in Matthew chapter 20, when James and John go to Jesus and they request to sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand when Jesus uh, brings in his kingdom, 
their request is, is misguided and, and prideful. But Jesus does say, you will sit at my right hand and my left. That's to be granted you by the Father. So as Christians, we will rule with Jesus. When Jesus comes back to judge the world, we will rule alongside him. We will be, uh, Jesus will be set up as the king of the universe and we will reign under him. And so that's a big responsibility. That's a huge privilege. And so if we can do that, can't we handle these trivial cases? And then verse 3, don't you know that we are to judge angels? Again, when Jesus returns, he's going to judge even the angels, right? So Satan and his uh, demons are, these, are fallen angels. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, uh, God promises that the, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head, right? And we know that that's Jesus that comes and crushes Satan. But in, in Romans 16 verse 20, Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So we're to take heart as the church because God is going to crush Satan under our feet. So when Jesus comes back and he casts Satan and his, his fallen angels into the pit, we'll be standing there with him, pronouncing judgment on Satan with Jesus. That's a big responsibility and privilege. And so if we're going to do that... How much more can we settle matters pertaining to this life? Paul's essentially saying, listen, the church is equipped to be Supreme Court justices. You think they can't handle small claims court issues? Compared to where we're headed and what we're going to be doing, these earthly matters, these matters pertaining to this life, they just aren't that big of a deal. And so the church is competent to figure it out. We don't need to take these cases to the secular courts. Because Christians have God's Spirit within them, and because they will one day judge the world and angels, they're certainly competent to give judgment on trivial cases. Remember, back in, uh, chapter, in chapter 2, Paul says, "...we have the mind of Christ." Christ knows what is best in a given situation, and he will reveal that to his people. Now, these uh, cases that they're bringing to one another in court, these are likely things related to property or contract disputes or uh, inheritance issues, right? These are fi kind of financial issues, and they're, they're bringing them to court to settle them. And so Paul says those things are trivial in light of the second coming. And so you don't need to worry about them. You can handle them yourselves as a church. The church has God's spirit. And because the church has God's spirit, it is uh, governed by godly priorities. Members of the church, what do we care most about? We care about justice and righteousness and grace and so when we look at a contract issue, say there's a Christian contractor and the person that has employed them and, and they're trying to figure out what's right in a situation, 
Well, another believer can step into that situation and say, okay, here's what's right in God's eyes. Here's the best thing moving forward. And so the, the church is going to be governed by those godly priorities. So go to the church to figure out those issues. And not only that, but the, the Roman law, the, the court of the Romans, they're not governed by those priorities. Verse 4, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? The Roman law courts are not governed by godly principles. They're governed by worldly principles. The church has God's wisdom and priorities and will render right judgment, whereas the world's courts have the world's priorities and they're going to render worldly judgments. So let's keep this matter in-house. Stop taking one another to court. The second problem with this approach is that when you take your brother or sister to court, you have already lost. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. It jeopardizes the unity of the church, and it brings shame upon the reputation of Christ and his church among unbelievers, right? We all understand that with, with our families. If there's a dispute in our family, we don't want it in the papers. If, if someone dies and leaves an inheritance to, to two siblings, to two children, it's sad if they can't figure it out and they have to take each other to court. That's true of an earthly family, and it's, it's also true of, of God's family. We don't want to air our dirty laundry to the world. We want to pursue peace and reconciliation with one another and, and have the world see that we're loving one another and, and caring for one another and serving one another. When, when these members of the church were taking one another to court, they were acting in a worldly way. Uh, so back in the Roman law system, even more so than today, but this is still true today, there was a power inequality at play. Uh, basically, might made right. If you had the deepest pockets, you could buy the verdict that you wanted in court. Right? And we still see that today, that, that people with the deepest pockets, the biggest resources, they can often influence the legal system in their favor. Right? They, have, they have the ability to take something to court that someone with less finances doesn't have the ability to take to court. Right? They, can, they can manipulate the system. And so these, these believers, you'd have these wealthier believers could take less wealthy believers to court and they would win because they had the reputation, they had the influence, they had the money, and so they could influence the verdict. Basically, they were saying, I can get away with this, so I will get away with it. I can do this, so I'm going to. This maximizes my financial situation, right? I can get more out of this inheritance, or I can, I can change this contract so that it's better terms for me, or I can settle this property dispute in a way that's best for me, and so I'm going to. And Paul says, that is a worldly way of looking at it. And you need to look at it from a spiritual perspective. That is not how it works in God's family. He says, if, you've, if you take one another to court, you've already lost, so why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So they were wronging and defrauding one another in the courts. 
And Paul says, listen, as a Christian, you should be ready to be wronged for one another. In Galatians 6, he says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Listen, if you want to live by worldly standards, if you want to sow to the flesh, if all you care about is your bottom line, then you're going to get that, but it's going to lead to destruction. Rather, let's sow to the Spirit. Let's live these godly lives and reap eternal life. And when we're living a godly life, what we're going to do is we're going to say, how can I bless someone else? How can I do good to this person? And especially if they're a member of God's family. If this is a brother or sister in Christ, my main priority is how can I bless them? Wouldn't that, don't you think that would change disputes, right? And then in in Matthew 5, Jesus points this out as well. He says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Jesus says, hey, if you go to court with someone, the most important thing is not whether you win, it's righteousness, it's it's doing what is right, it's, it's following me, it's surrendering your life to me. And so Paul, Paul is not saying here that we shouldn't have grievances with one another and that we shouldn't uh, address those grievances. Again, life is complicated, right? You might have an inheritance issue and it's really not clear what should happen. And so it's appropriate to find someone that's godly and mature in the church and someone that is familiar with those types of issues and invite them in and say, hey, we're not seeing eye to eye here. It's not clear to us what's right. Could you come and step in between and help us, right? And it doesn't mean that you can only go to a pastor with this or or anything like that, right? God has gifted the church with Christian lawyers and Christian businessmen and Christian contractors, right, that are, that are familiar with the, ty- the type of, types of problems that come up. And so let's invite them to the table to help us. We're just not going to take it to court because we're going to settle it here. There's two other things this passage isn't saying. It's not saying that Christians can never go to court because if we, if we uh, have a legal dispute with an unbeliever, it wouldn't be it wouldn't make sense for us to hold that unbeliever to the standard of submitting to the authority of the church, right? Because by nature, they don't submit to that authority. So it would be strange to tell an unbeliever, hey, let's, let's settle this in the church. They'd say, I'm not a member of, I don't belong to that church. That has nothing to do with me, right? So it is, it is possible and it does happen that believers go to court with unbelievers, but we still, in those situations, have the same priorities, right? We pursue peace, we pursue justice, we pursue righteousness and grace, and we're not going to be greedy and, and litigious in those situations, right? But it does happen. And then secondly, the church has misused this passage to say that we're not going to bring cases of abuse to court. We're not going to go to the authorities when there's abuse, 
right? So I, I'm, I'm not talking just the Catholic Church here. This is, this is our problem, too, as Protestants, right? We've, we've seen the stories on the news where someone in the church abuses a child or a spouse, and the church tries to cover it up, right? The leaders in the church say, hey, don't go to the authorities with this. That would be embarrassing for us. Let's just handle this in-house. Paul's not saying that. Paul's referring here to these uh, contract issues, these inheritance issues, things like that. In Romans 13, he addresses the reality that God has given us the government to, to carry the sword. He says the, the government has the authority to prosecute wrongdoers. And so if there's a criminal case of abuse, we as a church will take that case to the court, to the authorities, right? The authorities need to become involved and the church needs to be involved, right? Because the safety and well-being of the abused is the most important in that situation, right? So we will not use this passage to sweep abuse under the rug, right? We will take it to the appropriate authorities and we will come alongside those individuals with grace and, and the gospel, so it was wrong of the church to be taking one another to court because the church is gifted to handle these situations. But then secondly, Paul wants to remind the church, hey, you are forgetting what it means to be declared righteous by Jesus Christ. We see that in verses 9 through 11. If you read the New Testament, but I see it especially in Paul, one of the reasons I love Paul is he is relentless about the gospel. Every issue for Paul is a gospel issue. He's teaching us to be that way. There is no such thing as, okay, this is my church life, but then here's my, here's my work life, here's my financial life, here's my personal life, right? And it, I can separate the two. So on Sunday I can go... And, and I can be this type of person, but then when it comes to my business dealings, I'm going to live in a worldly way. No, Paul says it's all under one umbrella. Everything that we do is informed by the gospel of grace. Members of the church had gotten caught up in these legal concerns. They were obsessing over the Roman law courts. And Paul says, let's remember which courtroom we need to be most concerned about. Look at the legal language in verses 9 through 11. Verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That word unrighteous could also be translated unjust, right? This is a justice issue. Those who are not just will not inherit. You want to talk about inheritance? Okay, those who are unjust will not inherit the kingdom. And then down in verse 11, he says, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were declared in God's court to be just. Paul is way more concerned and we need to be way more concerned about our standing in God's court than our standing in the secular courts, the worldly courts. Now, let's look at what he says. Notice that Paul does not say in verse 9, don't you know 
that God accepts everyone all the time, and so should we. This isn't cheap grace. Paul's not saying God just loves everyone and just ignores problems. Paul says, unrighteous people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sinners don't go to heaven. If you ask someone, do the unrighteous deserve God's punishment? Do, do wicked people deserve God's justice? They'll say, many of us would say, yes, absolutely. Paul says, okay, but who are the unrighteous? If you look at this list, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If we look at that list, if we're being honest with ourselves, each of us has some, have some people on that list that we look at and we say, yeah, you're right. Those people are unrighteous. Those people are wicked. Those people are dirty. They do not deserve the kingdom of God. I agree. I feel that way about those people. Away with those people. And Paul says, yeah, it's true. They are sinners. They are wicked. They do deserve God's punishment. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. But take a closer look at that list. So we can look at the list and we can say, oh yeah, sexually immoral, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, yeah, they, they deserve God's punishment. But for this context, Paul, Paul puts in greedy. Right? You take each other to court so that you can get money, you don't deserve the kingdom of God. You're governed by your greed. You're swindling your brother and sister. That type of person doesn't go to heaven. Just like there is someone on this list that it's easy for you to say, yeah, they don't deserve God's kingdom, there's someone else on this list that you're like, I'd rather just brush past that. Let's not talk about that category. Right? Even in, in verse 11, Paul says, such were some of you. I think that little, that little line is a test. When you hear Paul say, such were some of you, do you immediately think, yeah, there are people in our church like that. There are sexually immoral people here. I, know, I could point at one right now. Yeah, there, I know greedy people in our church. You're right, such were some of us. I think Paul's testing you. I think you're supposed to say, yeah, such were some of us. So was I. I am one of those people. If you can't identify with this list, that's really dangerous. If you see unrighteousness and you immediately think of other people, you don't get the gospel. Paul is kindly saying to us, we are all on this list. We are all unrighteous. We are all dirty. We are all guilty. If you want to be concerned about court, let's talk about God's courtroom. In God's courtroom, you are unjust. 
God has you dead to rights. You're toast. You have no legal defense before God by, on your own strength. If you want to take your friend, your brother or sister in Christ to court, you might win that case. But do you want God to take you to court? You will not win that case. But when God had us, when he, when he could have declared us guilty, he didn't. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were one of those dirty sinners. And Jesus washed you with his blood. And you are not a dirty sinner anymore. That, that word sanctified, so we, sanctification can, be, can refer to two realities. So sanctification, we often use to talk about that ongoing process of becoming like Jesus. So once, once the Lord saves you, the rest of your life you spend learning how to be like Jesus. That's sanctification. But it can also refer to that, that one-time event. And that's what Paul's saying here. He says, you were sanctified, past tense. And that you could, instead of saying sanctified, you could say sainted, right? You were made a saint, Back all the way back in chapter 1, right? We're saints together. How is it that I'm a saint? How is it that you are a saint? It's not because you're a good person. It's not because you have done well. It's because Jesus has made you a saint. You were very unholy. And Jesus came and he made you holy. And then finally, we're justified. There's that legal term, Again, in God's courtroom, you are guilty. There is no defense. You should be declared guilty. And Jesus comes along and he declares you just. How can that be? How is it that we can be just before a holy God? Because Jesus came and he took the penalty for your sins. So let's go back to that lawsuit idea. If you take someone to court and you win the lawsuit, they owe you the money, right? And you have to pay. If God takes us to court and he sues us, he's going to win the case and we're going to owe him the money and we're going to have to pay. And Jesus comes and he says, I will pay. I will pay the debt that their sin has built up. I will take that debt and I will make them square, right? I will satisfy that debt. I will fulfill that debt on their behalf. And so we are just before God because of Jesus' work. And not only that, you and I have nothing good to bring to God, right? We cannot earn our salvation by our good works. And so how can God declare us just? Because Jesus has done the good works. Jesus has fulfilled all of the requirements of righteousness. So if God takes us to court because we have broken our contract with him, Jesus can step in and say, I have fulfilled the terms of that contract. I have done everything that God's law has required. 
and I want my fulfillment of the contract to fill in for their lack of fulfillment. And so God can look at us and declare us righteous in his courtroom because of Jesus and what he has done for us. So Paul, again, he says, listen, you're worried about these Roman law courts? They pale in comparison. God's court of law is what matters. You were dead to rights and you have been declared righteous. And so we can no longer look at one another and say, yeah, they're dirty. Yeah, they deserve punishment. Yeah, I should get what I can out of them. Instead, it's, I've been forgiven. I've been made clean. And so I'm going to pursue righteousness and holiness and peace and unity. Let's close by looking at Luke chapter 12. Jesus faces one of these legal cases. A man comes to Jesus, verse 12, or excuse me, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This man comes to Jesus, says, Hey, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. Wants Jesus to settle this legal case. And Jesus says, who made me a judge or an arbitrator? That's a trick question. Jesus says, listen, if you want me to judge this case, if you want me to be your arbitrator, I'm going to take you to God's courtroom. And you're guilty there. So be careful. Don't be obsessed with the things of this world. Don't lay up treasures here on earth but rather lay up treasures in heaven. Look to God's courtroom and what it means to be declared just in that courtroom. That trumps everything else. God's grace in our lives will reframe our grievances with one another. Let's pray. Father, we are unrighteous. We have not fulfilled our contract with you. We have not loved you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourself. We have not been faithful to you, and so we deserve your punishment. Thank you for the blood of Christ that washes us and makes us new. Thank you that through Jesus we have been justified. I pray that the justification of Christ would reframe how we pursue quarrels with one another. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.